This morning, it's my privilege to welcome Reverend Dr. John Tucker to our stage. Come on up, John. Let's give him a warm welcome. John is married to Lorraine. And uh, tell us about your children, John. How, what age are they? Um, they are nearly 15, nearly 13 and 10. So. Fantastic. Busy Great time ages. in your household. Yeah, busy time. And yeah. uh, because you've got a whole heap of spare time, we've just elected you as the new Kerry Baptist College principal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, great. congratulations on that yeah, appointment. We, um... Well, commiserations. Commiserations. Well, <laughs> nothing I can say. <laughs> the only time I went to the principal's office was, well, wasn't for a prize. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Yeah. Um, John was raised at Mount Albert Baptist Church, involved in, uh, in that church for a long, long time. Uh, John went to university, trained as a lawyer, and then he went back into Baptist College and trained to be a pastor. And you then went on to uh, pastor at Milford Baptist for six years. Mm -hmm. You finished there, you did your PhD over three years, mm -hmm. and the last eight years you've been working as a lecturer at Kerry. Mm -hmm. And as I just said at the last hui, um, we just set you aside, set you apart as the principal. So what's it like, John, stepping into this role as a principal of the college? Honestly? Um, well, turn off the camera here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I have had spasms of terror occasionally when I've thought about the shift from being a, a teacher, uh, a pastor, to an organisational leader, and mm. particularly in view of the incredible leadership that that Kerry has received over the years. You know, you look back at this lineage of amazing principles. Mm. So at times I think, my goodness. Um, but, you know, we're singing about the faithfulness of Jesus and a real strong sense that Jesus, through the members of his body, has laid his hand on me and called me into this. So, you know, with that, a, a remarkable sense of peace and, and excitement about what Jesus is gonna continue to do, yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, it's a real privilege to have you here, John. Cool. So we say, kia ora, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa, mātua. John, welcome, yeah. and uh, we'll give you the pulpit. Great, thank Thanks. you. Um, well, I've actually got a confession, um, not just to Craig and to Colin, who invited me down, but to all, all of you. I teach preaching at Kerry, and um, amongst other subjects, and when, I, when I'm talking to the students in a preaching class, I say to them, whatever you do, when you preach, Preach the word. You're a herald of the word of God. Open up the text of scripture and let God say again what he once said through those words and lives will be transformed. So whatever you do, I say to them, make sure that you preach as much as possible from a passage of scripture and you just, you just let that passage determine the form and the content of what you say and God will speak. The confession is that I'm going to break that rule this morning. <laughs> and uh, this, 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 um, I, I've gone through something of an existential crisis this week, actually, as I've been preparing for today, because I've been asked to come and share with you um, on a subject, in this case, the Baptist vision of church, which I don't think I can locate in a particular passage. So I'm, I'm forced to break my rule, and I, I, I confess that for some of you, it might feel a little bit like you're back to fifth form or, or year 11 history. And I, I'm, I'm sorry about that, and I'm not sorry. The reason I'm not sorry is because I actually believe in Scripture, God calls his people again and again to remember. You know, the number one command in the Old Testament 
almost, the most common command that God gives his people is remember. Look back. Remember what I've done and who I am, what I've said to you, and that will sustain you and guide you into the future. So with that said, let's get into it, but I'd love to pray first. Let's do that. Oh Lord, we thank you that you are here with us. As we gather in your name, you promise. Where two or three gather in your name, you are there. By the Spirit of Jesus, you are among us. You're speaking to us. You're at work through us. And uh, Lord, we ask that, that as we reflect on, on this biblical vision of church that so captured the imagination of, of our Baptist forebears, that you would speak again. Guide us, we pray. Form us in the image of Jesus, in whose name we ask this. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, um, I came across, I stumbled across really a few years ago, a really interesting book, and the book was called Bowling Alone. I don't know if anyone's heard about this book, but it's a book by an American political scientist called Robert Putnam, and in this book, Robert Putnam says that he reckons, this is his argument, that from the 1960s onwards, the social capital, that the sense of community in America has collapsed. Traditional political, social organizations have, have found that their membership has been decimated. And people, I mean, like, like sports clubs, bowling leagues, people still play sport, right? People still go bowling, but they're bowling alone. They're bowling alone. Now, a few years before that book came out, some sociologists over in uh, the Berkeley University in, in California, they did a really interesting study. Um, it became really well known. It's, it's called Habits of the Heart, if you ever want to read about it. And what they did was they analyzed the, the, the attitudes of, of people in America towards love and relationship. And you know what they found? They found that that there's a traditional view of love that many people have. And, and according to, to people with that view, love is essentially about self-denial, self-sacrifice, self-control. Love, love is effectively an expression of the will that should be honoured regardless of how we feel. But what this massive research project uncovered is that there is a profound shift occurring in American society. This traditional understanding of love is being displaced by what the researchers called a, a therapeutic approach to love. People with this view, they tend to put much more emphasis on how we feel than on what we perhaps should do. Love is about feelings above all else. So the important virtues on the therapeutic view, are not self-denial or self-control or self-sacrifice, but self-fulfillment, self-expression. And the fruit of that, the, the result, is a society impoverished with shallow friendships, broken marriages, dysfunctional communities. 
Sound familiar? I mean, this might be America that, you know, the researchers were studying. But it sounds remarkably like New Zealand society to me. I want to stand here and say to you this morning that I believe one of the most prophetic, one of the most strategic missional responses that we could make to our society today, to our context, is to recover the Baptist vision of church. Some of you are looking at me in stunned silence. What what do we mean by that? Well, um, and this is where it starts to move into a historical lecture. Apologies. Stay with me, okay? Listen. Listen for the word of the Lord in all of this. Way back in 1609, the Baptist movement was formally launched, really. And it was launched at a time when most churches throughout the, at least throughout the European world, were state churches. So if you, for example, were born in England, you had to be a member of the Church of England, whether you were a Christian or not. Now, now the early Baptists, they read their Bibles and they, they thought, this, this is nonsense. That's not a church. The, a, a true church, according to our Baptist forebears, consists of, of a community of believers who freely gather together because they've been called by Christ and they form themselves into a, a covenant community, a tightly knit group as an expression of their faith in Jesus. This is how they described it in in just one famous document. I promise you it's the only quote I'll give you from a historic document, and it goes like this. The Church of Christ, this is the early Baptists in 1611, the Church of Christ, we believe, is a company of faithful people separated from the world by the Word and the Spirit of God, being knit to the Lord and to one another, by baptism. Now, those words, knit or bound to the Lord and to one another, they're important. The the early Protestant reformers, people like Martin Luther, we just celebrated, if you were reading the news, celebrated 500 years since the, the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, just about a month ago. Martin Luther and people like him, they, they discovered or recovered this wonderful truth that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, God had reached down and, and, and made a covenant with humanity. God had bound himself to humanity in love, right? Well, the Baptists, our forebears, were even more radical. They added to that. They, they recognized that that this covenant that God had made with humanity didn't just contain a a vertical dimension, God reaching down to us, binding himself to us. It includes a horizontal dimension. They they said to participate in this eternal covenant of grace with God means entering into mutual covenant relationships with the people of God in, in a local church. This is what distinguishes us as Baptists to the extent that we would claim that title. We're Christians first, of course. But as Baptists, our unique insight or conviction, and listen to this if you want to, to, um, to be able to know what it means to be Baptist, this is what it means. The conviction that we most fully experience and, and embody the liberating rule of Christ when we give ourselves to a small group of believers in costly covenant love. 
Do you agree? That's what it means for us to be Baptists. We most fully experience and embody the, the, the liberating rule of Christ when we give ourselves in costly covenant love to a, to a group of believers. Now, some of you are looking a little bit dubious, even suspicious. Trust me, this, is, this, is, this covenant understanding of the church is thoroughly biblical. Let's, let's reflect for a little bit on, on the scriptures. You know, in the Old Testament, God enters into a covenant with the 12 tribes of Israel, remember? He says, you will be my special people. But that covenant contained a horizontal dimension. I mean, as the law of the covenant said, made it very clear, he, God said to his people, if you want to experience my presence in your midst, if you want to show the world what I'm like, then it will require you to show one another the same kind of love and faithfulness that I've shown you. That's the Old Testament. And, and you see that time and time again in the Old Testament law and the prophets calling God's people back to this commitment to love one another with a costly covenant love. And then in the New Testament, what, is, what, is, what does Jesus say to his Followers, the, the new people of God, his 12 tribes, the 12 disciples, what does he say to them is his number one commandment? The great command is what? As I have loved you, so you love one another. He's talking to his people, his church. As I have loved you, so you love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. And then you read on and you find Luke's description of this early church in Acts 2. In fact, why don't we turn there? Open your Bibles if you've got a Bible. Very quickly, Acts chapter 2. This classic description of the early church under the blessing of God's Spirit. Acts chapter 2, and it starts like this. Luke says, these believers in Jerusalem, this local church, they devoted themselves, Acts chapter 2 verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to, what's the word? Fellowship. Koinonia is the Greek. Community. These early Christians, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the word of God, and to the fellowship, to one another. And then, if you read on, you see in this little short description of the church that these Christians, they shared everything. They shared their, their, their property, their possessions, their homes. They shared their lives. They gave themselves to one another and to the Lord. And what does it say at the end? It says they enjoyed the favor of all the people. They won the admiration of everyone who knew them. And the final verse is, God, the Lord, added to their number daily those who were being saved. An incredible vision of the church. And then you move on, and the Apostle Paul, he, he describes baptism, the, the sacrament of the church. And, and how does he describe that? If you've, if you've read his description in, in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, to the people in, in Corinth, the Christians in Corinth, he says, you were baptized by one spirit into one 
body. Interesting. He says there that baptism is not primarily a a statement of personal faith in Christ. It is that, but it's more. It's a rite of initiation into the body of Christ. Getting, Getting dunked, getting immersed in water is a symbolic way of being included into a covenant community. A a community of people that that are knit so closely that each one of them is like a different part of a body. Does, Does that image describe your life here as the people of Bethlehem Baptist? Now, I, I could go on. I could go on and on and on, but, and you'd be very disappointed with me. But what I'm hoping is that that's just enough evidence to persuade you, members of the jury, that this vision of the church, this Baptist understanding of the church as a covenant community is thoroughly biblical. It really is. But, but my point this morning is, is, to, is to impress upon you how that vision of the church profoundly changes the way Baptists have related to one another throughout history. And I think is a challenge to the way in which churches today relate to one another as individuals in a church. Can just, I'll, I don't have time to, to run through it all, but let me give you an, just a snapshot, an example. Take discipleship, for instance. The process of, of you know, sanctification, the good glorious theological word, the process of becoming like Jesus. How does that happen? Well, many, many Christian traditions will say that the process of, of becoming like Jesus, sanctification, spiritual growth, requires withdrawal from community so that you can seek solitude and silence and, and, and hear from God. All right? Many, many retreat centers are based on that, that principle. Well, Baptists, with their conviction that, that we experienced the liberating rule of Christ most fully in a tightly knit community, we have always argued that no, if you want to grow in Christ, sanctification, discipleship, that can only happen in the context of a, of a tightly knit community. I'm... Um, I'm reading at the moment to our family, to our three young children, The Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien's classic story about some little hobbits on their journey towards Mount Doom. And um, it's a remarkable story. I think Tolkien is a brilliant author. You know, it turns out that Tolkien was a member of a small, tightly knit literary group, which consisted of, of him of C.S. Lewis, the great children's author and, and, uh, and Christian philosopher, a guy called Charles William, another author. There's three brilliant literary minds and one or two others, but they were really tightly knit. And just after World War II, Charles Williams died unexpectedly. And, and I guess as a lament, C.S. Lewis wrote about his friend in a book that he called The Four Loves. And this is what he wrote. Let me read these words to you. They, um, they're, they're incredible. He says this. This is what he, he, he reflects as he, as he thinks about the death of his friend Charles. He says, In each of my friends, there is something that, that only some other friend can fully bring out. 
By myself, I'm not large enough to call the whole man or whole woman into activity. I want other lights that, that, than my own to show all of his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald Tolkien's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald now, far from having him to myself now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. In this, friendship exhibits a glorious resemblance to heaven itself, where the very multitude of the blessed increases the, the fruition which each of us has of God. For every soul, seeing him in her own way, doubtless communicates that unique vision to all the rest. That, says an old author, is why the seraphim in Isaiah's vision are crying, holy, holy, holy to one another. The more we thus share the heavenly bread between us, the more we shall have. So in other words, I mean, Lewis is saying there that it takes a community to really know someone. So how much more is it that if we want to know Jesus, it will take a community? I mean, did you hear what C.S. Lewis was saying? Now that, now that Charles, his friend, has died, he never gets to see the particular look on, on Ronald's face when Charles tells a joke. No one else can tell jokes just like Charles, and so no one else elicits that particular expression on Ronald's face, like, like the friend who's gone. And so Lewis says he has less of Ronald now that Charles is gone. He doesn't have Ronald to himself. He's got less of Ronald rather than more of him. It takes a community to know someone. How much more with Jesus? Do you want a relationship with Jesus? Do you want to know Jesus better? Well, then the scriptures and, and Baptists throughout history have said, you can't do that on your own. You need to be deeply involved in a, in a committed Christian community with strong relationships of love and accountability. And then, if you, if you have that, you will experience Jesus more fully than anywhere else. Do you believe that? I could go on. We could talk about... Uh, the way in which this particular Baptist vision of, of church as a covenant and community, it doesn't just change their understanding of discipleship. It changes their understanding of, of leadership. It changes their understanding of mission and witness. I mean, it's got massive implications, and, and hopefully one day I'll have the chance to, to talk with you more about that. But, but I, um, I was having a conversation a while ago with a, a good friend, and he was telling me about his son, who's a, who's a young adult, um, I'll call him, I'll call the, young, the, the son Martin. He's in his 20s. He loves Jesus. He loves serving the kingdom of God. He, he wants his life to be all about that. And he's basically stopped going to church. And you know, the reason, according to my, my friend, as he reflects on his son's journey, the reason is that is that. Is that his boy has become involved for a number of years now with an intentional missional community in West Auckland where they have knitted their lives together very, very closely. And it's given him a taste for community 
He loves it. He longs for more of it. And he finds very little of it in the suburban church that he was raised in and which his parents are members of. A Baptist church. I think that's a tragedy. Because the scriptures and and the Baptist vision of the church should generate a really rich sense of community amongst us. So why doesn't it? Always, often. Well, it doesn't happen by accident. This kind of thing requires intentionality. Um, I I guess that's why Baptists, right from the beginning, back in the 1700s, they would would actually enter into formal covenants. They They would write documents that formally captured what they believed Christ was calling them to do by way of committing themselves to each other. And they would sign these documents as a solemn promise that they were giving themselves to one another as well as to the Lord. And the the words they sometimes used were, we give ourselves to the Lord and to one another whatsoever it costs. Unlimited liability for one another unconditional accountability to one another. Incredible. And that practice of signing a covenant is the origin of of the contemporary Baptist practice of membership. A lot of churches don't have membership. We do. But if we're honest, the way we practice membership today in Baptist churches is a far cry from covenantal membership as our forebears understood it and practiced it. I mean, it's, it's, it's a light years away. It's a very, very different experience. Most people, for them, when they talk about church membership, they think it's, it's getting your name on the electoral roll, right? So you can vote at a members meeting. Whoop-de-woo. I mean, honestly, as, a, as, as someone in pastoral ministry, no, no wonder so few people ex- see the value of membership. I think we need to recapture the traditional distinctive Baptist understanding of covenant membership. Church membership is this, a costly, countercultural commitment of covenant love to a group of people in a church like this. If we were to take that seriously, what would it mean for you? What would it mean for you if, if, if we were to do that? Well, covenant love, costly countercultural covenant love, what does that look like? I think of Robertson McCorkin. He was the principal of a theological college uh, when his wife Muriel was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And he wrote a book reflecting on, on 25 years caring for his wife as she deteriorated, as her mind decayed, and she became more and more confused. I mean, it got to the point in her degeneration where she could no longer string a full sentence together. Except for one. There was one sentence that remained, and she used it often. I love you. When, when, when Robertson was making his way to the, the theological college where he was working, it was a round trip 
of about one mile. He employed someone to look after Muriel, but even though there was someone employed to look after her, she would sometimes escape. Very often she would go after her husband, following Robertson to the, to the, to the college. Sometimes she would make the trip 10 times in a day, a one-mile round trip. Robertson would get home in the evening and he would be helping Muriel get ready for, for bed and he would find her feet bruised and bleeding. So in the end, it got to the point where he decided that he could not continue as the principal of that theological college and take care of his wife. So he resigned his position. He gave up his role, a strategic role, where he was achieving so much. And, and people were amazed. Some people were upset. They said, how could you do that? I mean, this is, you know, this is not wise stewardship of the talents that God's given to you. And this is how he replied. He said this. Had I not promised 42 years before in sickness and in health till death do us part? It's more than keeping promises and being fair, though. To be honest, as I watch her brave descent into oblivion, Muriel is the joy of my life. That's covenant love. I think of a young adult in the church where I um, used to pastor. She gave up the chance of getting straight A's as a good student in her university studies so that she could give the time required to take care of the troubled teenagers in our little youth group. I think of a business executive who, who gave up, he handed in uh, a, a really high-powered and high-paying role in order that he would be available for his young, growing family and the church family to which he was committed. That's covenant love. I think of an elderly couple who have been part, I know this the couple, they've been part of the same church family for decades, really actively involved, through thick and thin, through good times and bad times. And if I'm honest, it's been mostly bad times in the last few years but they're not going anywhere because they recognize that their faith in Jesus, their, their covenant head, means a commitment, a bone-deep commitment to the members of his body around them. Look, at, we live in a society that is fractured by unfaithfulness. We live in a world where, where, where marriages and families and communities are breaking down. I really believe that one of the most strategic missional responses that we could adopt as a church and as individuals is to recover the Baptist vision of church as a community of costly countercultural covenant love. May it be so. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, it's amazing to think how you, Son of God, King of Kings, 
Lord of creation, became a human at Christmas. You came down to us. You became one of us. And you bound yourself to us. Thank you for this new covenant in your blood. And we recognize that in calling us to be your people and to experience and live in your love, you call us to love one another with that same kind of costly love. And we confess that so often our friendships are superficial, our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ are are passing, fleeting. Forgive us. And give us the grace to to, to bind ourselves to one another. Not just those we like, but those we don't like. So that we might be a a truly countercultural community that shows the world what you and your covenant love are like. Amen.